Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. I finished the previous episode before the slap heard round the world at the Oscars. Developments have been both fast-moving and confusing in its aftermath. The latest is that Will Smith has resigned from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the folks who bring you the Oscars every year. Smith included a host of mea culpas in his resignation statement, as well he should. He may still face some sort of disciplinary action from the Academy. They likely won't try to take back his Oscar, but Smith's star power could well be severely diminished. That, my friends, is a big deal. For his part, Chris Rock handled Smith's violence with as much professionalism as one could expect. If you care about all this, take a step back and look at the timeline post-slap. Smith tried to equate what he did to the character he won the Oscar for. Smith apologized, but not to Rock. He proceeded to party the night away at one of the vacuous post-Oscar parties, in this case sponsored by Vanity Fair. There was a story that Smith had been asked to leave the ceremony by the Academy, but Variety reported that the producer said he wanted him to stay, and so did Rock. Rock, in turn, denied this. Last Monday, Smith did apologize to Rock, but at his sold-out stand-up show in Boston later in the week, Rock said he was still processing what happened. Is that twisted enough for you? For me, it comes down to a few things. Number one, I don't watch award shows. None of them. To me, it's all about millionaires celebrating themselves, air-kissing their way to bigger box office. Simply being nominated is enough to breed new life, new financial life that is, into otherwise moribund films. It's pure puffery and the simple fact that the slap generated 56% higher TV ratings than a year ago is proof enough for me. Now, the film industry has every right to hype itself, just like I have every right not to buy into it. It, it hype itself just doesn't make sense. Now, I have to say, we need to be more upfront about what the Academy Awards, in fact, are. And why the Academy thinks they're so damned important. As for Smith and Rock, how about they just keep it moving? And now on to more important matters, starting with Ukraine. A couple of episodes back, I posited the notion that the Russian public, in the main, supported Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Now several surveys have been released, and of course the West has questioned how accurate they are. But those reports and surveys released say that at a minimum, a majority of Russians support what the Kremlin calls a special military operation in Ukraine. There could be many reasons for this, including Putin's refusal to call it either a war or an invasion. There's also the framing of the action by Putin, calling it not just an action against Ukraine, but one against the West. The support remains constant even as Russian forces appear to have suffered a number of setbacks in the field. The Ukrainian military is more than holding its own against the odds, odds that are stacked in Russia's favor. Yet there appears to be a holding pattern to the war. With simultaneous reports of carnage brought on by Russian attacks, gains by Ukrainian forces, and occasional reports of peace talks that don't seem to be getting anywhere. What does all this mean? Is Putin a war criminal? Can he 
be brought to justice if he is? Will the Russian people ever turn on him? Now come images and video reportedly taken after the Russian withdrawal from areas near the capital, Kiev. Put simply, they're horrific. If they were shown inside Russia, would they turn the average Russian against Putin? I'm not at all sure about that. As the war continues, the propaganda war, which we did talk about a couple of episodes ago, is continuing and is more and more intense. I do know one thing, the fighting in and over Ukraine must end. Despite the urge to keep fighting, there must be peace, an end to the war. The person who started the war is the person who must end it. That would be Vladimir Putin. Up next, two stories, God help me, about Donald Trump. One is a mirror into his greedy soul, the other a lawsuit from an unexpected source. This is The Intersection. It's springtime and you're listening to Mark Riley, the intersection of politics and culture. Welcome back to The Intersection. Donald Trump is some piece of work, but you already knew that. While he was president, Trump had a chief White House photographer named Shayla Craighead. She took countless pictures of the then president inside the White House. As his term ended, she notified aides to Trump that she intended to publish a book of her images. Then things started to go off the rails, even by Trump's standards. First, an aide told Ms. Craighead that Trump wanted a cut of her advance in return for writing a foreword to her book and to helping promote it. They then, according to the New York Times, asked her to hold off publishing it because he was putting out his own book, which currently sells for up to $230 a pop. His book includes her photos, as well as other White House photographers. Her book did credit her for the larger number of pics, but thanked all photographers whose photo he used, including hers. What needs to be emphasized here is that while she received an advance of several hundred thousand dollars, Trump got a multi-million dollar advance, according to the Times. How greedy is this man? I'm sure somebody told him that Craighead's work isn't subject to copyright, as they're in the public domain. Yet the fact that Craighead has decided to hold off publishing her book is a mirror into Donald Trump's soul, not hers. There appears to be nothing too small, too inconsequential, too anything that escapes his eye for making money. To say he's greedy insults greed. Donald Trump is the first former president who tried to make money off the work of his White House photographer. Trump would doubtless say that all the others who didn't are suckers. Meanwhile, Trump may have to testify under oath, not in front of any attorney general, not in front of the January 6th committee. They may not depose him, but instead it could well be Caribbean superstar musician Eddie Grant. He's suing Trump for $300,000 for the unauthorized use of his song, Electric Avenue. Trump used it in a campaign ad back in 2020. According to his lawsuit, as of September 1st, 2020, 
The video has been viewed more than 13.7 million times. The tweet containing the video had been liked more than 350,000 times, retweeted more than 139,000 times, and had received nearly 50,000 comments. Trump, through his attorneys, argued fair use, that the ad was satire, and anyway, Trump can't be sued because of, quote, absolute presidential immunity, end quote. That's his default defense for just about everything. A judge has already refused to throw the suit out, and if there's no settlement, both parties will be deposed on June 21st. I'd buy a ticket for this one, and not just because I know Eddie Grant and have interviewed him more than once. I would love to see this man, Donald Trump, receive his comeuppance in court, any court, under any circumstances. Actually, He's fighting a rearguard action these days against those who say the crowd at his rally in Georgia the other week was anemic. Not my words, the words of someone else. That's because anything less than the biggest crowd ever is fake news, just like the crowd at his inauguration. I know I shouldn't even give this man two words on this podcast, yet I find myself having to talk about his greed, his avarice, and how, like his good friend Vladimir Putin, Trump is a political glutton for whom everything is not enough. Up next, what exactly did a number of parents do to their teen children during lockdown? The answer may surprise you. And is white Christian nationalism dangerous to your health? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. A recent study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention should make every parent of an American teenager sit up and take notice. That study, conducted during the first half of last year, shows a startlingly high number of teens reported high levels of emotional distress, with more than 40% reporting levels of sadness and hopelessness that stopped them participating in normal activities. Just as bad, more than half reported experiencing emotional or physical abuse from their parents or other adults in their home. I believe all too often we ignore the young because we're too busy dealing with adult issues, our adult issues. The cost of living, our jobs, our health care, all these things weigh on us, but also weigh on our children. The CDC study says major mitigating factor in the lives of young people is school. That would mean keeping teens in school if at all possible. Thankfully, most if not all of the country is out of lockdown now, but what damage has been done? I've talked before about the time young people have lost during the coronavirus pandemic. It's time they will never get back. Imagine how it must feel to be isolated from familiar faces for the amount of time some lockdowns lasted. It looks like we won't be seeing lockdowns again anytime in the near future, partly because of the mental stresses and strains that it has put on us as adults, 
I don't think we necessarily spend a great deal of time thinking about the stresses and strains it put on our kids. I just don't get that sense. Even with COVID infections on the rise in many places, few have imposed or reimposed lockdowns. Yet it's always a possibility, and next time we should maybe pay more attention to its impact on teens as we worry about the economy and other adult issues. You know, I've always been seriously laissez-faire about religion. I say that because for a long time I would call myself a lapsed Christian. But when I say laissez-faire, I mean that if you want to believe something, that's up to you. I don't believe in infringing upon religious freedom in any way, shape, or form. Now, I certainly respect religions that are about the uplift of humankind. And I have met many, many religious people over the years who were committed to doing just that. I really don't have time to name them all, but some of them have made an extraordinarily positive impact on my life, both as a young person and as an adult. Yet not all religions profess to have this as a priority. Case in point, a pastor in Tennessee recently profiled by the Washington Post. His name is Greg Lott, and he heads the Global Vision Bible Church based outside Nashville, Tennessee. He has, among other things, defied a mask mandate at the height of the pandemic, held book burnings of what he calls witchcraft, and continued to push the notion that the 2020 election was stolen and the theft constituted a new holy war. That's right, a new holy war. All this would brand him ordinarily as just a little weird, but he also rails against the LGBTQ community, among others. He says he's not a Christian nationalist, but in my judgment, he's as close to one as I'll see. Don't get me wrong. I believe in the First Amendment. It protected me when I worked as a talk show host and journalist, and Greg Locke has every right to preach what he sees as his truth. I just think his truth is a little screwed up. He apparently has hundreds of thousands of followers, many of them online. And what's his claim to fame? Casting out demons, or so it would seem. That and involving his church in politics. You know, when people talk historically about separation of church and state, there were many, many good reasons going back hundreds of years in America's history why it made sense to separate church and state. Now, over the years, that separation has been blurred. Now, it hasn't just been blurred with evangelicals or people who believe in witchcraft. There are many progressive people, progressive pastors, who have also gotten involved in politics. Our good friends, Reverend Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, are two examples of this. But casting out demons? Casting out demons? What drives people to preachers like Pastor Greg Locke? It eludes me. He says he makes no apologies for his toxic mix of religion and politics. He blasts what he calls cowardly preachers who won't call out what he calls sin. 
This is a common thread among some religious leaders. Not all, let me be clear, not all, but some religious leaders. They tell their congregations that God has spoken to them and therefore the truth lies with them. In some cases, that truth says, for example, no women can become pastors. People must use literal interpretations of the Bible and, most importantly, anyone who deviates from their truth is a false prophet. One could say, this is such a lot of nonsense, were it not for the potential to do real harm. There are members of Locke's congregation who have died after refusing to be vaccinated for COVID after Locke told them not to, saying that COVID, the vaccine for COVID, was the work of the devil. He spoke on the eve of the January 6th insurrection on the steps of the Capitol. Some of Trump's top lieutenants have visited and even spoken in his church. Does any of this make him worthy of censorship or censure? Even after my litany of problems with Greg Locke, I'd say not. That's because if you start censoring people like him, you start down a slippery slope where good Christians end up subject to the same type of censure. The way to deal with poor speech is to come up with better speech. My brother told me that a long time ago, and it's as true now as it was back then. That slippery slope of censure is not good for anybody. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.